look at all the unitary controllers, the floor level controllers, zone level controllers, the smart thermostats and so forth. Um, yeah, you're, you're in the range of uh, 20,000 different uh, devices, CPUs. Welcome everyone to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. He's going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how's it going? It's going very well. Thank you, Nate. Our guest today is Barry Coughlin. Barry is a strategy consultant at Tower Hill Analytics, and he's going to be talking to us about building automation. His topic is 20,000 CPUs in the average skyscraper. All right, here's you and Barry. Hello, Barry. Before we start, can you tell me a little about yourself? Hi, Andrew. Um, yes, I, uh, I've been in the um, controls industry for a little more than 30 years. Um, I spent the first half of my career in industrial controls and um, the second half of my career in uh, building automation. Um, I spent quite a bit of time at Schneider Electric and um, was responsible for a good bit of time uh, for the development of um, the the Schneider Electric Building Management System. What does modern building automation look like? Uh, well, build, building automation today is um, is fairly sophisticated. Um, it um, consists of server at the top, uh, usually on the local enterprise network, on a on a VLAN, and um, below the server uh, there are floor level or zone level. Uh, supervisory uh, network controllers sitting on Ethernet, connecting back to the host server. Um, below those um, zone controllers are what are called unitary controllers. And those unitary controllers may be on Ethernet, but more likely they're on RS-45 networks over BACnet, which is a network standard in the industry, or a LAN network, um, similar to Modbus, but it's a protocol that uh, is really uh, used a lot in the building automation space. And um, those unitary controllers are spread uh, throughout a building. Uh, they're connected to fans and heat pumps and all different types of HVAC equipment uh, in the building. Um, and then of course there's things like thermostats and sensors and so forth. And more and more these days, uh, those devices as well, the, the sensors, smart sensors, uh, we'll have a CPU and maybe a small operating system and a fair amount of software in them to make them intelligent and networkable. And in the title of the episode, you know, we're, we're talking about 20,000 CPUs. Which of these is 20,000? Uh, well, it would be the combined, of course. Uh, there's maybe one or two uh, central servers, let's say. And when we're speaking of a skyscraper, you know, it's, we're, we're, we're saying something that's, you know, 60, 60 floors and above, you know, up to, uh, you know, maybe 80, 100, 100 stories in the very, very largest buildings. Uh, but something in the, say, the 60 story range uh, would, would be considered a skyscraper, I believe. Um, and um, so all combined, um, when you look at all the unitary controllers, the floor level controllers, zone level controllers, the smart thermostats and so forth. Um, yeah, you're you're in the range of uh, of 20,000 uh, 20, different uh, devices, CPUs. Um, and uh, the movement really has been to more and more intelligence, uh, something, there's a movement in the industry towards smart buildings. And um, 
so uh, yeah, the the uh, the proliferation of CPUs and uh, small operating systems, um, as well as many of these devices have the ability to uh, serve up web pages. So they have a, a small web server. Um, oftentimes they're running Linux or some Linux variant or some uh, micro kernel operating system. So what struck me there is the 20,000 CPUs. I mean, to me, that's a lot of CPUs. Um, you know, I'm I'm used to power plants and 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 refineries in a you know in a a portion of a refinery. One sort of one DCS one one control system's worth in a refinery. You might have fifty thousand sensors in a in a you know a generating unit in a power plant. You might have between twenty and fifty thousand sensors. Um, not each of them has a CPU though. You tend to group a couple of hundred sensors onto a PLC. So you're dealing with a much smaller number of CPUs. But so I, I was surprised by by all those CPUs. You know, maybe I shouldn't have been, you know, the modern world is all about more CPUs. CPUs keep getting cheaper. People keep building more of them into everything. I mean, a modern car has 200 CPUs, but still 20,000 CPUs is, seems like a, an awful lot of stuff to manage. Yeah, yeah, that actually, that stood out to me too. But it occurs to me as I'm listening to Barry that we also did a building automation episode uh, a few episodes back. Um, is Barry in the same sort of category as Fred Gordy or are they coming at it from different places or, or what? Good question. Uh, Fred was with Intelligent Buildings and Intelligent Buildings, you know, um, installs, maintains building automation systems. They are uh, a service provider, an engineering firm. Barry's background is Product development. I, I mean, he worked in Schneider Electric. He worked with their engineers who deploy and manage uh, automation in buildings as well. But he was also in charge of their product development. So his the, the perspective he's giving us here is much more sort of technology centric than sort of the uh, the building gestalt centric that that uh, Fred gave us. The other thing that Barry mentioned that is going to come up you know, in a, in a second here is RS-485. And for anyone not familiar with that, uh, this is a communications hardware standard. It's a signaling standard. Um, you know, a lot of us might remember, you know, think 20 years ago, uh, RS-232. If you wanted to get on the internet, you had to have a modem connected to your phone line and the modem connected to the computer with an RS-232 cable. RS-485 is like RS-232. It's a, it's a physical cable. Uh, but RS-232, you could only run about, about you know, 8 meters, about 25 feet. And then it kind of petered out. Um, RS-485 is designed for up to, I think, uh, I don't know, a couple of, a couple of kilometers. Um, at very close distances, you can do 10 megabits per second. At very long distances, it gets much slower. You can have multiple devices connected to the same cable. So it's a, it's a, it's a fairly old, but still very commonly used uh, communications hardware when you're talking to uh, physical devices. You're talking about Linux. You're talking, and, and you know, any Linux box can run a web server. But you're also talking about RS-485. Are you talking about a web interface over the RS-485? Uh, sometimes, sometimes, yes, uh, in fact, because um, the occupants in the building uh, will also have a mobile app that will connect from the thermostat to their smartphone so that when they come into a conference room or their office, they can set up their temperature preferences uh, uh, and their their schedule and so forth will sync to their smartphone. So that's a local connection to that web server in that smart device. 
that smart device, that thermostat may be connected uh, with a Wi-Fi connection back to the server or, or some other upper level controller, or it could be RS-485, it could be Ethernet, it could be Zigbee. So there's a lot of different ways to connect those thermostats back northbound in the control system hierarchy. Um, but again, they are they're often now starting to connect to the user user uh, via apps. If you've got a uh, you know a smart thermostat with a web interface um, and it's running 485, you can't run a web interface over 485. It would have Wi-Fi too. So so the Wi-Fi, uh, or it would, it would have Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, and so um, and often it's Bluetooth. So you can you can run a, a small web server and and and, and um, transact traffic um, via via um, via the app through Bluetooth, and and if it's and if it's uh, not a full web server like Apache or something like that, it's it's in a sense acting acting like a, a server, uh, not necessarily a web server. But some of them do indeed have Wi-Fi and web servers, um, so it's a, it's a little bit of a, a mixed uh, a mixed fare, and uh, it depends on the you know the capabilities of the of the thermostat, but. Um, but and and and, the, and these are fairly commonplace now. So there there, there is some there. Is, the point is that there is uh, a fairly easy access point with from a cell phone or, or or a tablet device right into a smart thermostat, and that thermostat may be backhauled northbound through RS forty five or Wi fi or or Ethernet. Andrew, not to complain here, but this 485 stuff seems a little bit wonky for this early in the episode. You know, usually we warm up to this stuff. Um, what's so important about what you guys are talking about there? Good call. It's all about connectivity. I always want to try and understand the the connectivity, you know, how, how the different pieces are connected because whenever two CPUs are connected, whenever two computers are connected, it's possible for attacks to jump from one computer to the other. It's possible. They call it pivoting. You can attack one computer and use the compromised computer to attack the next connected computer. And, um, you know, there's a lot of attack technology out there for you know complicated systems like web servers and Linux. It, there's a much smaller set of uh, you know common attacks for things like RS-485 because it's such a primitive signaling interface. There's so little you do with it, and so um, I was just trying to figure out where it all fits because if we understand how things are connected, we can understand how attacks can move through the system. And the point that I heard uh, Barry make was that you don't do a web server over RS-485. That makes no sense. What he's saying is that, you know, one of these smart thermostats might have a Wi-Fi connection to the, the, the cell phones in the room or a Bluetooth connection to the cell phones in the room or an Ethernet connection into the higher level controllers or an RS-485 connection into the higher level controllers. But you, you would have the web server over the uh, the Wi-Fi, not over the RS-485. So that was just, that's the piece that was confusing me. Another question here, we've been, we've been talking mostly about environmental control, about HVAC. A skyscraper is also going to have elevators. And, you know, if we're thinking about sort of the, the most sensitive systems first, that, that's a safety critical system, is it not? Is this not part of the, the, the cyber equation here? Uh, well, well, certainly, certainly it would be, uh, could be, uh, and sometimes the elevator systems are, are are integrated with the building management system, or and or the security system in the building. Um, so yes, those are those are certainly those are certainly critical systems. Um, 
and, and there are other systems, uh, you know, such as um, smoke evacuation systems in the event of fire or, or fire control, fire suppression systems would also be considered mission critical. Let's talk about cybersecurity. Let's let's maybe start with consequences. What consequences are we trying to avoid? If someone hacks into a building management system where the elevators are integrated, can they cause the elevators to plummet to the floor 60 stories and kill everybody inside? I think it's probably a little bit a little bit extreme. Uh, elevators, uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a deep expert on elevators, but from what I understand of elevator systems, they tend to have uh, mechanical fail-safe built in. Uh, in the event of um, you know a control problem or a uh, electrical problem, hydraulic problem, and so forth, so so I think that's highly unlikely. Um, but certainly, people could become stranded in an elevator for a long period of time, say be sitting between floors or something like that, and uh, that would not be gr uh, great uh, during a rush hour or so forth. So so um, so I think the the odds of a catastrophic accident being induced is slim. Very slim, uh, but but certainly some some other major inconvenience or, or safety issues. Okay, well, as a user of elevators, I'm delighted to hear that there's mechanical safeties, and I'm not relying on a computer for my life. Yeah, no, that's true. So we've talked about you know denial of service if the, if an elevator is stopped, um, you know, can you talk about the the HVAC system? You know, what what consequences are we trying to avoid there? Is it just uh, you know trying to avoid some hacker coming in and and uh, you know making it too cold for comfort, or you know what what is the consequence that we're we're working on? So I think if you're just looking at it from that perspective, like what sort of what sort of havoc could be wreaked on an HVAC system, it really depends on the building. You know, clearly in a hospital, a healthcare setting, um, where it's imperative to to maintain positive air pressure in an environment where infection control is important, um, you wouldn't want any anything to happen there while patients are, are you know being serviced uh, or, or under care, and, and so so that that's sort of an extreme case uh, where where somebody could impact the airflow and potentially affect the health, the health of the of the patient. Um, you know, so so I think those are, are risks, um, and uh, you know, there's probably other risks that are more like uh, like mission impossible uh, scenarios uh, that are extreme. But but I you know I think more of the question is around um, having this many devices on a network, um, having a very very large surface area, the devices becoming smarter and more capable with more memory and uh, more features, more connectivity. Uh, like we discussed with the smart thermostats now connecting to user apps. So fairly, fairly open to the public um, to gain access to. Uh, and so I, I think it's a question of surface area. And then now you've got 20,000 computers at your disposal that you could use to mount other, um, other attacks within the, uh, in the enterprise. And I, and I think that's, that's probably the bigger concern is just think of these as uh, the potential for, uh, you know, to act as honeypots, uh, you know, where it would be quite easy to sneak uh, exfiltr exfiltration uh, routines in there to go and, um, you know, maybe uh, maybe go look for credit card information or other corporate corporate uh, trade secrets that you're you're trying to exfiltrate and using using these um, this very large surface area, these, these devices to act as sort of spy units in the, in the enterprise. That's probably the biggest concern. What I took away there, uh, what, I'm, what I'm thinking about here is 
the the back door. What Barry's talking about, he used the term surface area. I think he meant attack surface. An attack surface is the sum of all opportunities for attacking a specific target. And, you know, 20,000 CPUs in a skyscraper, that's a lot of opportunities, especially if all of them have connectivity for Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and ways for sort of modern attacks to work their way into the system. You know, it's it's not really an industrial uh, concern, but a lot of businesses are worried about stealing data. And the the industrial connection here is, um, you know, imagine we have a 100-story a skyscraper. We've got, you know, 50 companies in the skyscraper, and there's a Tim Hortons on the ground floor. And, you know, I walk up to the Tim Hortons, and it's got thermostats. It's got, a, you know, a couple dozen of these CPUs hanging around. I connect to one of them. I discover that it's old. It has vulnerabilities. I hack into it. Now I'm in the building control system. I work my way into the floors with the targets that I'm interested in. I reach back out. You know, you can you you compromise uh, CPUs one after another in sort of a chain. Chain your way into I don't know the thermostat in the meeting room, and uh, you know start testing the connectivity with um, laptops and you know other computers on that floor in that meeting room. And now I've got an opportunity to steal data from my target without even going through the internet. You know, a lot of people imagine if, if I want to break into company X, I've got to go out to the internet and come in through sort of the front door and try and break in to the company through their heavily defended internet interface. This is a backdoor. It completely bypasses the internet. You know, if they discover that the information's gone missing, where did it go? Well, let's look at the records. It never went out to the internet. It just, it disappeared mysteriously. How did, you know, this, this you know, it's the industrial connection is that we're using the industrial systems as a vector, as a way to do these other uh, more sophisticated attacks. I get what you're saying, but as you describe that scenario, it, it reminds me of a thought that I had at the beginning of the episode when, you know, he's describing 20,000 CPUs in this in this giant skyscraper. I sort of get the industrial connection, but it seems to me like we're talking a little bit more about IOT. Am I wrong? There is some of that. And, uh, you know, Barry uh, uses that term from time to time. Um, You know, what is IOT? What is industrial IOT? I think about the two differently. I think about, uh, you know, what is industrial IOT in terms of two characteristics, uh, capability and context. If a device is capable of controlling the physical world, to me, it's a candidate for industrial IOT. A lot of IOT in the world is measuring, you know, um, my heartbeat is measuring things in the world. But if we're controlling the world, now it's a, it's a step, you know, it's, it's six steps closer to, to industrial in my books. And then the other one is context. Is it in a, an industrial context? Well, if I'm doing control-capable IOT in a refinery, I'm sorry, that's industrial IOT. Is building automation industrial? Well, Kind of. It's sort of on the edge of industrial. Most people will will look at it and say, um, you know, heavy industry is obviously refining and automobile manufacturing. Um, but things like building automation and even the automation that's in automobiles, not the, not the automation for building the cars, but that's in the cars, that's sort of on the edge of the industrial space. But people generally still use the word industrial for that, yes. Okay, so you mentioned uh, context and capability. But what about consequences, because it occurs to me 
that um, you, you mentioned this uh, scenario of the, the elevator falling 60 stories, and Barry mentioned that that's a little bit far-fetched for what we're talking about here, and that the hypothetical you just gave me um, largely surrounded stealing data. This sounds a little bit more like the kind of consequence you get in IoT or the IT space rather than with industrial systems. Are there consequences to what we're talking about that um, mirror the kinds of consequences that we usually deal with in the industrial space, whether it's, you know, uh, chemicals blowing up or, or whatever it may be that we, we usually cover on this show? That's a very good point. Maybe I need to change my, my uh, categorization for industrial. Um, I like what you said. You just said the, the, uh, the consequence, if it's, if it's a physical industrial consequence, then it's an industrial system. If the physical consequence is, you know, frozen elevators, or as as Fred Gordy, you know, uh, described a, uh, a you know a, a cavitating chiller that's that's been destroyed and needs you know months of repair, um, that's a physical consequence. If the consequences are only business consequences, like stolen information or you know lawsuits or stuff like this, to me that's an enterprise consequence. And the scenario I gave you was an enterprise consequence, stealing proprietary data, credit card numbers, who knows what. Um, But it was stealing them via an industrial system. Because if you compromise the industrial system, yes, you've got an opportunity to get into the enterprise as a backdoor, but you've also got the opportunity to cavitate your chiller or to, you know, lock up your elevators or, you know, bring about physical consequences. So I maintain it's an industrial system. I like your categorization. Uh, but you're using the industrial system in my scenario that you know in, in what I heard uh, Barry talking about as an attack path into the enterprise. You mentioned two protocols, BACnet and IoT. Is that IoT Internet of Things or IoT something else? Or did I get it wrong? Yeah, the IoT is more of a, an architectural construct of Internet of Things, which is you know you're. You've got these smart sensors now um, and smart devices that you put into a building. Um, they're not connected in the building on the on the VLAN necessarily to the to the BMS directly. It's going out over the cloud itself it as its own cloud connection as a device, and then it's then the data is going up to the cloud and then it's being relayed back down into the BMS. So if you want to pick up a remote temperature or a, or a lighting sensor or, or some some device like that, rather than hardwire it to the BMS, they'll actually bring it up over the internet and push the data back down into the BMS. The protocols in that case, the protocols are varied. They, they tend to be IoT protocols like MQTT or other IoT type protocols. Uh, they're not they're not necessarily backnet in that case. They're 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 uh, IoT uh, type protocols. Okay, so the the internet connection is often where people's you know imagination for security starts. You're saying the the modern IoT device reaches straight out to the internet, presumably over the cell network or something, or yeah. maybe you know local Wi-Fi. Sure. Yep. The application server is connected into the enterprise network and through the enterprise into the internet, but none of the other servers are directly connecting to the internet. They all connect to the application server and they don't go straight out. They, they, they connect to the central server. Um, they're, they're, they're capable of going out, but typically they're, they're, as an installation best practice, they're isolated on the VLAN. However, the, the central server is usually connected to the internet. Um, so that, that 
that you can do this this remote uh, servicing of the building. Okay, and when you say connected to the internet, it is accessible to, from the internet. It's actually connected to the enterprise network, which is connected to the firewall, which is connected. That's the better way to look at it, yes. Now, I, I did slip in something a little bit insidious there you, that we kind of bypass. And what I said was that those floor level or zone level controllers, they are capable of connecting to the internet. And um, this this is a real concern, you know, because uh, they have full-blown uh, Linux operating system, Apache server, or that kind of thing. And, um, you know, ideally, they're behind the firewall on a VLAN uh, and so forth and isolated and air-gapped, if you will. Um, but in reality, we know, we know in the industry that... Um, Unfortunately, you know, best practice installation isn't always done. There's many, many, many system integrators in the world, thousands of them that are installing these uh, systems around the world. And uh, we know that they're installing them with default passwords and the like coming from the vendor. Uh, uh, it's not funny. Uh, it's, it's actually very serious. And, and, and they're, they're, you know, there's, they'll, they'll use the default IP address. They'll use the default passwords. They will put these um, embedded Linux uh, controllers um, not necessarily behind the firewall. Uh, they will they will put them on the internet and not even know they're doing it. Uh, so this is a serious problem, and um, this is existing uh, in the industry today. Waterfall Security Solutions is the OT security company. Waterfall's new ebook describes advanced unidirectional security for power generation. Now, many of us are already aware of basic unidirectional protection for power plants. After all, one-third of all North American power production is already protected unidirectionally. The new ebook explores five advanced applications of unidirectional gateways for power plants. You can find the ebook at the Waterfall website. Look for ebooks in the resources menu. The last thing that Barry said here is, to me, actually a, a little distressing. Um, He's right. You know, Linux is Linux. Linux is a programmer's paradise. You know, I love Linux. I'm a programmer. I'm a hacker at heart. You can build anything on Linux. Most people have. You can download stuff for Linux. Linux is, you know, the engine of the, the modern internet. Most of the, the internet's web servers are running Linux. And what he's saying is you got 20,000 CPUs, most of which are Linux, in one of these buildings. Every one of them could reach out to the internet. Every one of them could be a full-fledged citizen on the internet. Best practice is that they should all connect to the application server, and the application server is the only only, only interface to the enterprise network or to the internet. Um, and you know, so you know, presumably we would we would defend that application server, you know, instrument it fairly heavily. Um, but if someone did not use best practice and connected one or a dozen or you know, fifty of these other Linux, you know, 20,000 Linux devices out to the internet somehow, how would we notice? I mean, that's, it, it, it you know, it, it speaks to a, another huge opportunity for backdoors. I mean, Shodan that we talked about a couple of episodes ago might, might be able to find some of the stuff if it was listening, if these Linux boxes were listening on certain ports. But, um, you know, if they were just reaching out and, and doing stuff on the internet, how would we even see that? I mean, you're, you're trying to find a needle in a 20,000 CPU haystack. That, it, very distressing to me. You talked about attack surface. The other piece of the attack surface is, you know, networks throughout the building, uh, 
devices throughout the building. Um, you know, how, how bad is this? How easily accessible are these devices for tampering? Well, normally they're physically locked in a closet and they're in an electrical panel, like a control panel, um, which, which may or may not have a key lock. Um, and so they could be in like a janitor's closet, for example. They, they can be embedded. They can be up in the ceiling, behind ceiling tiles uh, oftentimes. Um, you know, remember, there's 20,000 of these things. So you're trying to hide them <laughs> in every nook and cranny you can during construction. Um, and so, you know, it's more security by obscurity, uh, I would say, than it is... Um, you know, a very stringent locking down and physically uh, locking everything. Um, but, but you know, in best case, you've got a physically locked uh, closet, like an equipment closet, and, uh, and a locked panel. And ideally, you, you have a security camera in that closet so you know who's accessing it. You've got a badge system so you know who's badging into the closet and so forth. So from a physical standpoint, you're kind of, trying to limit the access. Uh, but when you get up into the ceilings and so forth, it's, it's nearly impossible to limit access. Uh, you know, these devices are spread all over the place. And um, yeah, it's tough. And then when you start getting into these things like smart thermostats that we talked about, yeah, you've got a Bluetooth connector, connector there. And, and if your enterprise is giving you access to download the app, now you've got connection to that thermostat with your app. Um, and it's over Bluetooth, uh, you know, it's theoretical that somebody could get a sniffer on that and reverse engineer that protocol and possibly hijack uh, that thing. Um, so, so this, there's, there's a lot of avenues for entry mainly because, yeah, because so many protocols, really huge physical challenge if you were going to put everything under lock and key. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of ports, physical ports. Um, USB ports, Ethernet ports, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, et cetera, that, that these, these controllers are featuring. Um, and so, yeah, it's a problem. So these are all serious problems. Um, you know, you talked about the difference between older systems and newer systems. Um, are there solutions out there? Is, is this getting better? Um, I, think it, I think it's getting better. Um, slowly you know i think there's awareness growing there some of the major trade organizations are, are starting to focus more more on this um uh ashray for example which is um one of the major the major trade organization focused on uh, heating ventilation and air conditioning uh, they have a new uh, a new um section that's focused on this uh, nema nema is now focusing more on on um cybersecurity in the enterprise, including in building management systems. So, so you know, I think the industry is starting to get better. Uh, and as well, there's some um, standards like um, 62443, which were originally designed or aimed at uh, SCADA, industrial SCADA systems and PLCs, but are, are broadly applicable to the uh, building management systems. And those are starting to become adopted by the major vendors of building management systems. And that, I think, is gradually getting its way out into the customer base. Um, but, you know, we have a long way to go. There's millions upon millions of buildings out there. And, um, you know, I, I would say the, the industry is in its, its very uh, early stages of, of um, 
getting a kind of systematic uh, grip on this. So you mentioned 62443. I mean, um, in in some industries, they're adopting 62443 because really they have nothing of their own. And so that's what they see out there. Is 62443 really a good fit for building automation? Uh, generally, yes, up to, I would say, security level three. Um, once you get into security level four, then you're starting to look at you know very, very stringent, very customized um, mitigation and defensive strategies, but but up until level three, um, you know, I think with proper planning and discipline, that should be fairly attainable uh, in most uh, in most buildings, with some care uh, and, and a little bit of investment. So I think overall the model fits well. It's not perfect. There, there's a handful of things I need to be treated a little bit differently in the building management system world than in the industrial world. Uh, but but by and large, it fits. Um, there's also the NIST standards, um, which I mentioned ASHRAE earlier. Um, but I, I, I tend to lean more towards the 62443 versus the U.S. standard uh, because it's international. And building management systems tend to be, you know, marketed and developed and marketed for as an international global product. So the manufacturers, they it's very difficult for the manufacturers to adopt and support every single standard. It's too expensive. And, and it, sometimes the standards can run a little bit counter to one another. Um, so I'm, I'm more of a believer. And I think most of the manufacturers you would find of building management systems are gravitating since 62443 because it is global in nature. And that, that way they don't have to necessarily, you know, deal with every single local country level standard. Um, and, and again, there is a fair amount of overlap between them anyway. Um, there's some differences, but, but by and large, I think you're, you're getting most of what you need there. For older buildings, for older systems, um, what are the options there? How do you, how do you protect them? It, it's tough. It's really tough. Um, so realize that when we mentioned that number of controllers, 20, 30,000 controllers, even in some cases, you know, these, these controllers are built into walls. They're plastered in, in some cases, you know, it's not like a removable ceiling. I mean, they're, they're very, very difficult to remove and upgrade and a life cycle of a building management system can be 20, 30, 40 years even. And so trying to, uh, rip and replace and, uh, and put in the uh, a new modern system is not trivial. Um, what a lot of vendors are doing now is it allows you to rip out the main server and kind of encapsulate the older system um, and uh, put wrapper the older system with a newer, mo more modern system, which um, would definitely be more secure. Uh, so, so there are some things you can do to sort of protect yourself. But in a lot of cases, you know, there would be no substitute for rip and replace if you can do it. It's just, it's just not always feasible. The one thing I would add to that is, uh, you know, I do think there are some great, you know, kind of newer modern network surveillance tools, passive and active tools um, that, that are coming onto the market that the different companies are investing in and developing, um, you know, that, that are, that are helping uh, monitor traffic on the older systems so that at least if you can't fully protect it, you can detect more quickly uh, if there is a problem. And, you know, I think of like Industrial Defender and, and 
maybe Cisco and a few others uh, that are investing and doing some good work there to to try to secure not only the modern system, but also to help detect problems with the legacy install base uh, to ensure ensure that you catch something quickly if it goes awry. You know, again there, Barry had brought up how these these uh, CPUs are in janitor's closets and behind these plaster walls um, and ceilings. It occurred to me earlier, but I didn't ask it, are these devices, are these uh, connected systems in these strange locations um, by virtue of, you know, saving space in the building, sort of like what we were talking about in our recent episode about trains, how there's only a certain amount of space to put computers, and so you sort of have to mush it all together. Is it for that reason that these machines are where they are, or are they specifically hidden in like ceilings and closets? The phrase I believe Barry used earlier was security by obscurity. That's a good question. I, I'm not certain of the answer. I know that, you know, people are reluctant to dedicate floor space to, uh, you know, to these functions. So, you know, closet space is, is a bit at a premium. It's, it's sort of more convenient to stick things into the ceiling. Um, I strongly suspect another factor is wiring. Even if, uh, you know, a, an RS-485 cable or, a, you know, can, can run four kilometers at a very low rate of, of uh, you know, data transfer, uh, an Ethernet twisted pair cable can run, I think, uh, 100 meters. Um, you know, running cable is expensive. If, you, if, you're, running a, if you're running cable to 20,000 things, um, that's a lot of cable. And the longer it is, the more expensive it is, and the more expensive it is to install. So I think, and I didn't ask this question, but my guess is that it's a cost-saving thing. If you've got a lot of stuff coming together, uh, you know, it's it's less cable and less labor laying the cable if it's sitting locally in a ceiling than it, if it's sitting across a large building on the other side of the floor in a in a wiring closet. So I I don't know that people are deliberately trying to hide stuff. They're trying to keep stuff out of sight because the tenants don't want to see this stuff. But I think you know where they put things has more to do with uh, cost savings than it has to do with security. And that might be something that has to change in the future. I don't know. I wanted to come back to an, an earlier topic, though. Uh, Barry mentioned the IEC 62443 standard. This is a, a very well-known standard in the industrial space. It's a family of standards. Uh, the ISA, the uh, International Society for Automation, designs the standards. The International Electrotechnical Commission publishes the standards. Um, and he talked about you know that being sort of the best fit. There isn't a good uh, sort of specific to building automation cybersecurity standard out there. Um, but he talked about 62443 as being international. And I think this is where we're, we're sensing a bit of his uh, vendor perspective. Because, you know, he's, he represented a vendor for 15 years. The vendors would like to have international standards that they can build their systems to comply with um, rather than a whole slew of local standards because it's just less to understand. So my, you know, what I'm taking away from this is that um, if down the road there becomes a, uh, uh, a cybersecurity standard that is designed for building automation, the vendors would really rather that that standard have an international pedigree, an international drafting team behind it, so that, again, they don't have, you know, a different variation of it in, in every geography that, that they have to comply with. So let me explore that for a second. Um, 
in the process industries where I do most of my work, power plants, pipelines, there are engineers deeply involved in the physical process in cybersecurity. You know, a, a power plant will often have two or three engineers permanently stationed at the power plant. They come to work every day, you know, nine to five. Uh, they're physically there every day, you know, involved in the operation of the plant. Now, I understand that, you know, the civil engineer who who uh, approved the building might not be there every day, but is there not, you know, and, and my point is that these engineers have become aware of security and are becoming very involved in security. There is a civil engineering practice that's involved in large buildings. Are these engineers not involved in in the security process at all? It's not really civil engineers that that put together the building automation system. It's usually a subcontractor to the mechanical engineer who is in turn a a subcontractor to the general contractor who got some blueprints from a civil engineer. So to try to give you some perspective, um, there's a kind of flow down of responsibility through subcontractors. And so, um, so, but but more to the point, there's in a large building like a skyscraper, you know, there's ab- absolutely a team of a few people, uh, you know, three to six people, depending on the size of the building that are maintaining that skyscraper, you know, you know pretty much 24 hours a day. And, um, you know, they're, they're worried about many things and, and cybersecurity is, is one of them increasingly, but more of the cases like, you know, you've got a, say, uh, I don't know, a five-story uh, hospital building that covers an acre or two, a uh, small, you know, say 200, 300-bed hospital. And, and they'll, have, they'll have their facilities people as well, but they're looking after medical equipment and many, many other things. Um, how worried they are about the cybersecurity of the building management system, I don't know. It's probably pretty far down on their list. And um, many buildings, like a 10-story office building, for example, it will have nobody on site. I mean, everything is managed remotely. And, um, yeah, they have no engineer on site. It's, it's completely um, running, running blind um, with a remote, you know, some remote, remote service contract where somebody, you know, if there's a major alarm, they'll get the alarm. But um, day to day, there's no one there. And, and that's, that's a big part of the stock of buildings, like a 100,000 square foot building, you know, a, a kind of 10-story office building. That's the, that's the sweet spot of the market. That's the majority of the market. Um, and, I, you know, I'd also say the ownership of maintaining that system, the cybersecurity in that environment is not always clear. You know, you have the building owner and then you have the tenants of the building and there could be a different tenant on each floor. So each each tenant could have their own IT back at their headquarters and then uh, maintaining, you know, some kind of cybersecurity vigilance. But they're all sharing the core physical network of that building through some VLAN, perhaps, and uh, all the tenants. And then you've got the landlord and hopefully the landlord's doing their part to secure that trunk line coming out of the building. Uh, so you have those scenarios ha- taking place as well, as well in a mixed uh, tenancy uh, type of type of environment. So ownership isn't as clear as it is in the industrial setting. So Barry, thanks for that. Um, We're coming up on the end of the episode. Is there a thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? I think there's a few things. Um, I I think if you're a major tenant in a building or you're an occupant of a building, you should be discussing with your IT and your landlord, 
you know, you should un- you should have a discussion with them around cybersecurity. You should understand what what the the exposure is, what the risk is, what is being done to mitigate the risk, um, and um, you know, you really you really should just start by inventory. Just understand the situation that you're facing, uh, and don't let it turn into a problem before you have to deal with it. Uh, you, you could very well you could very well find yourself out on the street with not being able to occupy the building if if something catastrophic happened, uh, and that would be very expensive and very disrupting. So so I think it's 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 very very smart to just understand what you're facing to begin there, uh, and then I think going from there I would move into some type of um, passive uh, passive monitoring, maybe some active monitoring reporting. So that you're getting events from that um, BMS uh, network, and um, you're bringing that into a into a flow, so that you can you can uh, be warned if there's some activity taking place as soon as possible. And then, thirdly, um, I would say know who to call when something does start happening. Like who are you going to call? What are you going to do? Have some type of reaction plan so that you're not wasting valuable time um, while this is happening, and so you can troubleshoot it quickly and mitigate as quickly as you can. Because I think a lot of times, the the stories that I read that that you know an event will take place and it will be going on for a month or two before somebody finally does something about it, uh, and and that it can kind of go under the covers, if you will. Uh, so, so those are the three three things. Find out ahead of time what you're dealing with, what your risk profile is. Um, get some monitoring in place. You know, like we mentioned earlier, there's some vendors now that are starting to work in this area. Um, so get get with those vendors. Uh, get monitoring in place, and then have an have a an action plan. Uh, if if in the event you do uh, have a problem. Um, you know who to call and how to how to address it. So I'd start there. Beyond that, uh, based on your inventory, you may have to take some some serious action about uh, you know ripping and replacing equipment in, in the extreme and and upgrading. Uh, but but I think you can start at least by knowing what you're facing before you do that. Andrew, how about a last word from you? Well. It sounds like we have our work cut out for us in the building automation space. I mean, the the measures that Barry mentioned are a good start, but looking forward, it seems to me that we really do need specific advice and standards for building automation. The big thing that I take out of the interview with Barry is the exposure inside the building. I mean, if we have smart thermostats and smart light switches with, you know, and each of them has Wi-Fi connections and each of these devices has, has limited security because they really weren't designed for security. Uh, and, you know, if they've got a 40-year lifespan, you know, who knows if, if they're going to be secure 40 years from now. If these devices have limited security and they're, they're networked into similar devices elsewhere in the building, you know, um, if anything in the building can be compromised from, a, you know, a a coffee shop, you know, and we can use the compromised devices to start looking around in the building for other similar devices on other floors and other tenants. You know, now we can launch attacks on any other tenant, you know, looking for their Wi-Fi, stealing passwords with phishing emails. That's a kind of exposure 
that we don't see so much in power plants. There's not a coffee shop that I can drive up to and, and gain access to a, a power, to a network that's connected through a power plant that way or, you know, a refinery. You know, this, it seems to me this is a kind of risk that would be good to address in advice that's specific to the building automation sector. Let's end things there then. Thanks to Barry Coughlin for speaking with you, Andrew. And Andrew, thank you for speaking with me. Always a pleasure, Nate. Thank you. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast from Waterfall. Thanks to everybody listening. Mm-hmm.